I'm eight years old and it's one of the last golden days of summer. I'm floating and lack profound in the Gatineau's. My arms and legs are outstretched like a star, just letting the cool water of the tiny lake support my body. At the edges of my vision, I can see the tips of firs and evergreens reaching their spiky pines towards the sky. It seems to go on forever. My ears are underwater, so sound moves slowly and everything seems so still. I know that soon I'll have to swim back and lower my feet into the squelchy silt that lines the bottom of the lake, that life will resume and we'll head back to the city. But for this moment, I feel so calm and happy, so lucky to live in such a beautiful country. I'm Sarah, and this is The Big Melt. I love the Canadian Shield. It's the bones of old mountains ground down over a billion years. It's gently curving slopes and bluffs dotted with freshwater lakes, carved by the same rain that weathered those mountains down. I remember hiking there with my dad, picking wild blueberries, sweet and tart. Maybe even sweeter because we found them. I remember looking up at night and feeling like I was actually seeing the stars for the first time. Millions and millions more than had ever twinkled down at me from the city sky. I remember watching for hawks and eagles. that would perch on the old dead spruce that had been split in two by lightning and blanched white by the wind and the rain. Canada is an incredibly beautiful country. There are vast wildernesses barely touched by people. Parts of it that are still truly wild. My childhood visit to Quebec may have taught me to love the outdoors, but catching the occasional glimpse of a fox was as wild as it got. Actually, no, I take that back. Uh, I was a boss frog catcher. The trick is to cup your hands in front of where they're about to jump, not where they're currently resting. Also, make sure not to touch their skin because that's how they breathe. And, oh, sorry, uh, where was I? Yes, the wild. If you truly want to experience the wilds of Canada, you have to go north. That's what this episode's all about. Home to grizzly bears, polar bears, orcas, seals, gray wolves, arctic foxes, moose, reindeer, walruses, and of course, the mighty and majestic marmot, which are ground squirrels that can live up to 18 years and sometimes just sit on their fluffy little butts with their legs splayed out so they look like they're just straight up chilling. Cute. All of these amazing creatures call the arctic home. So all of them are affected by the loss of habitat and changing weather conditions up north, some much more seriously than the others. But straight up, I really don't know too much about it. I guess because it's so far away from where most Canadians live, we don't think about it that much. It might as well be a totally separate snowy planet in a galaxy far, far away. So I hit up some listeners to kick off my Arctic exploration. So. First off, let's see what everyone's favorite Canadian animal is. Um, my favorite animal, Ooh, that's hard to choose. The chipmunk, the spirit bears. I like bald eagles. I really like the moose. A moose. And I also like deer. I like raccoons. Probably 
Um, snowy owl. <laughs> I love beavers too. Well, the peregrine falcon. <laughs> I think I like polar bears the best. All of the above. Yes. <laughs> I like them because they're ours. Yeah, they're Canadian. They're born Canadian. <laughs> uh, one of the bad things about climate change is habitat loss. The ecosystem's destroyed. It, lose, it loses its balance. Ice is very important. Polar bears and walruses, um, their homes are getting destroyed by the melting of glaciers. Their habitat is melting underneath them and they don't have anywhere to live. Just thinking about how if that were to happen to me, if I, I were to lose my home, that would be something that would be so huge on the news because it's a human that just comparing it to animals, just one human compared to thousands of animals that are losing their homes, it just it hurts. They don't have a voice, they can't say anything. They're what makes Earth Earth, because like they were here before humans. So, survey says... The Arctic is one of the most unique places on the planet. The Arctic is also home to some of the most fragile ecosystems on the planet. Very specific environmental conditions are necessary to keep it in balance, and it's particularly vulnerable to rising temperatures. Which makes sense, you know, seeing as its defining features how singularly cold it is. It's ground zero for a lot of global warming phenomena. That melting ice cap rising sea levels, thawing permafrost. We all feel the ripples of these changes, but they make up the very foundation of the Arctic ecosystem. The Arctic is one of the fastest warming systems on the planet. And we're already seeing impacts with changes to Arctic marine mammal diet, behavior, and their ecology. They're adjusting to a different Arctic. This is David Yurkowski. He's an Arctic researcher and all-around awesome dude. I talked to him about the importance of sea ice for Arctic wildlife. Let's jump into the call. Hello, Dave Yurkowski here. Hi, David. I'm Sarah. It's so nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you as well. Hmm. I'm doing a podcast about climate change, and today we're talking about the Arctic. And uh, since you've actually been there, I was kind of hoping that you could answer some of my questions for me. Yeah, sounds great. Happy to answer. Great. Thanks so much. First off, are you, are you in the Arctic right now? No, in the office at this time of year. Oh, you probably can't even get there this time of year, can you? No, well, you can because there are flights every day. But it just depends on the project. When we go, is during the summer, fall, during the more so the open water period. Um, so we can yeah, do different studies on uh, marine mammals. But if there's a winter project, then you can definitely go. Yeah, but I bet it'd be freezing. So can you tell us about your job? What kind of research do you do? I mainly work on Arctic marine mammals, uh, mainly the ring seal. I love them so much. They're so cute. But why did you pick the ring seal as opposed to a dolphin or something? They're an, an iconic Arctic species, very culturally important to the Inuit. And they're an interesting animal that is with reductions in sea ice, it's, it's likely going to impact their behavior and their ecology. So I, I find it really important to better understand how they're responding to these types of changes. And that's why they're one of the animals or species that I'm interested in researching. Amazing. So ring seals can actually tell us about the effects of climate change. 
Can you say how habitats in the Arctic are affected by it? Yeah, one of the one of the main habitats that's affected, of course, is sea ice. You get warmer sea surface temperatures, it's going to melt ice and degrade the ice. So it's affecting the habitat on many Arctic species that rely on sea ice. Or one example would be ring seals, where they they rely on sea ice as a substrate um, during the overwinter period, where they make hollow layers, uh, layers underneath the snow on top of the ice, and they overwinter in those. So the the snow and ice is very important for the life of ring seals across the Arctic. Yeah, ice is so important for all these Arctic animals. They practically live on top of it, so losing it is basically losing your home. Yeah. Now, it sounds so cool to work on a northern expedition. Can you tell us what the coolest part of your job is? Um, Many times in the summer to go up and set up camp with community members and as part of your research team. Um, One thing that I've done is go up to capture and deploy satellite tags on ring seals to see where they go and why they move to these different areas. So part of it is I've I've been able to to live handle many of the iconic marine mammals out there, ring seals, narwhal. So that is one of the best parts of the job for sure. Whoa, 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 just a second. Narwhals? You mentioned catching a narwhal for tagging? How do you even, I mean, how, how do you handle a narwhal? Yeah, so part of it, you um, set nets from shore, and some narwhal or a narwhal will swim into the net, and there's a couple boats or a couple zodiacs that would bring the animal to shore. It takes a big team to handle the animal. I mean, you're in you're in shallow water. The animal's still in the water. And it's about a 20-minute to half-hour tagging process where there's a couple people handling the tail, a few people handling the uh, four flippers as well, and you're taking measurements and samples, and and um, putting a tag on the animal as well. And, and it's a similar process that we do for ring seals as well, but they're much smaller and easier to handle. You don't need as many people as you do for a narwhal. So when you're on the ice trying to tag a ringed seal, have you ever been surprised by a polar bear? Thankfully, no. Is it something to worry about when you're out there? Yeah, it is. So, um, yeah, whenever you're working out on the land, yeah, you always have to be cautious and aware of polar bears. So there's always it's always good to have a team member that's kind of always on the lookout to a certain extent because yeah, that is a that is a big safety concern. Sounds scary. Well, make sure to stay vigilant. Yeah. Now, to end this interview, I want to ask something more personal. Can I ask, how did you end up in Arctic research? What got me interested in the Arctic was actually my first field trip to the Arctic, which was 11 years ago to Arviat Nunavut. Um, and just to experience the Arctic. It's a very majestic place that's changing very rapidly as well. So just to experience that and be part of these opportunities is um, a great thing with Arctic research. Well, thank you so much for answering all these questions. Arctic research sounds so amazing. Thank you very much. It was uh, great to be a part of it and answer your questions. All right. Great. Bye. Okay. Thanks. Have a good one. Wow. What a cool job. No pun intended. We'll be right back with the Big Mouth.
Now, let's get back to the pod. Anyways, because the Arctic is so vulnerable to environmental changes, the people and animals that live there have been forced to adapt at a rapid pace. The world they knew is literally melting away. You know, um, Tuktiaktuk, a village located in Nunavut, may be the first community in Canada forced to relocate their homes as the northmost peninsula of their town is consumed by rising tides and erosion. Part of adapting to these changes is tracking and documenting them. And that's the central mission of Tuktiaktuk's monitoring program, an ecological community initiative to gather climate change data using traditional Inuit methods. This is actually really, really cool and really, really important. You know, most of the time when we talk about climate change, we understand it using scientific methods developed by Europeans. This is an important way to understand the problem, but it's not the only one. There are communities that have lived in balance with their ecosystem for thousands of years and over time have learned to listen to and read their environment in ways that Western science just misses. So the program's projects include recording where certain types of berries are growing or the height of rhubarb stalks and observing how changes in growth patterns reflect shifts in temperature and rainfall. These traditional methods of knowing nature complement scientific research and keep communities actively engaging with their environment, which is important as that environment changes. I am so super lucky today because I get to talk to Charlotte Irish, who coordinates this program. She is right at the forefront of combining traditional indigenous monitoring methods and modern climate science. And she does this by leading a super cool team of people in her own community on data gathering expeditions. So I guess I'll give her a call. And here we go. Hello. Hi, Charlotte. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Is it a good time for you to talk? Yes. I just got back into the office from the field collecting data for a project. Oh my gosh, that must have been so chilly this time of year. Yes, it, it is very cold. But the wind chilled is like minus 40. Oh my gosh, I think it's uh, minus 5 here and I'm hardly standing that. <laughs> oh my, lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Can you tell me a little bit about the project? The Tukdiakta Community Climate Resilience Project. It's a three-year community-based climate monitoring project. Since Tukdiakta has been experiencing a lot of erosion, the community corporation thought it was a good idea to develop this project through Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, who funded us for three years. Yeah, I heard a lot about the erosions there. Can you explain to us, how does climate change affect your village? Climate change is taking a toll at the point of Taktoyaktuk. The hamlet is in the process of moving approximately four houses on higher ground. Not sure I got you. The hamlet is moving houses? Yes, um, the hamlet is moving houses due to the erosion. The houses are almost falling into the ocean. That's so crazy. I can't believe that. Yes. Okay, so coming back to the Tuktiaktuk Community Climate Resilience Project, what sort of things do you monitor? Currently, we're monitoring two lake locations, which used to be old traditional fishing lakes. We measure snow depth, ice thickness, 
permafrost depth, water turbidity, water temperature, the ice thaw and freeze date in the harbor and the ocean, and also plant and plant blooming date. All right. Uh, speaking about plants and blooming, I saw an article about the project that you monitor a plant called cloudberry. Uh, what is that? It sounds like something you'd have to eat to level up in a video game. <laughs> a cloudberry is locally called an epic. It's uh, shaped like a blackberry. It's uh, orange in color, and it's more it's more sour. Wait, so if it's shaped like a blackberry, can you make jam out of it? Yeah, people make jam out of epic. That sounds so good. It is very good. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, can you tell us how the monitoring actually works? We have local Inuvialuit trained climate monitors who go out and collect the data. They're also the ones who have chosen the lakes we're monitoring, that they're traditional fishing lake. We're also doing interviews with elders and active harvesters in the community to obtain more knowledge of the lakes and climate change. So did you notice any changes since you started the monitoring? Well, in my time in Tukdeyaktuk, I noticed that there has been earlier thaw dates and later freeze-up and less snow depth, less snow. In the interviews that we were doing with elders, they mentioned that there used to be uh, a lot of blizzards back in the day. Now we barely have like maybe four or five a winter. But wait, isn't it better if there are less blizzards? Yeah, it's, it's abnormal for us, but um, we have the wind, but there's just no snow blowing, you know, to make the blizzard. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yeah. What do you wish the rest of Canada knew about the North? That climate change is important, especially to us who live in the North, because we are being hit by climate change the most. Our land is being eroded, temperatures are changing, routes for hunting and trapping are changing due to thinner ice conditions. It's terrifying and it's amazing at what climate change is doing to our Inuvialuit land. Yeah, here in the South, we don't really feel the effects yet. But for you, climate change is not just a threat, it's a thing. It's already affecting your life. Yeah. I hope that when people are more aware of the things that happen in Tuktoyaktuk in the North because of climate change, they'll realize how important it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, Charlotte. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay, right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Wow. You know what I just realized? Charlotte lives in Canada, but she's further away from us than, like, Paris. I mean, Paris, France, not Ontario. Oh, shoot. I totally forgot to ask what her greatest polar bear encounter was. Speaking of which, it's time for the climate myth of the week. And this week, it's... There are more polar bears than ever before. Now, as great as it would be to imagine a North absolutely teeming with bears, wearing cute scarves and drinking soda, I have a feeling that might not be the case. Digging into this one was weird. Really weird. It's a bit of misinformation, bit of bad faith interpretation, and a lot bit of wishful thinking. Here's the sitch. A bunch of articles started saying that in the 1950s and 60s, there were only 5,000 polar bears. And now, there are around 20,000 polar bears. So, therefore, 
polar bear populations have quadrupled and they love global warming and everything's good. Cool? Now, here's the problem with that. Nobody really knows just how many polar bears there were around back then. Estimates weren't even attempted until like the 70s. Also, those estimates, they were generated using anecdotal information, meaning those scientific stats are the result of Norwegian and Russian people being like, on my walk, I saw a polar bear. I am seeing three polar bears. Based on this, I'm thinking there are 5,000 polar bears. You're probably right. Goodbye. Before driving away on a skidoo. The other thing is, well, it's possible that regardless of the exact number, population sizes may have increased in the late 60s and early 70s because things like trapping and aerial hunting were banned in northern countries. Seriously, we used to shoot at them from planes. Not cool. So sport-based population fluctuations aside, the fact is polar bears depend on Arctic sea ice to hunt seals and eat. Climate change has rapidly decreased the extent, duration, and condition of this ice, meaning there's less of it, it's around for a shorter time, and the quality of it kinda sucks. This ice is their habitat. Less habitat equals fewer bears. It's not rocket science. It's climate science. And there are actual studies linking the loss of habitat to reduced births and survival rates. Now, scientists note that some, not all, but some, polar bear populations may be stable because polar bears are resourceful and can hunt on land as well. But that puts them in direct competition with terrestrial brown bears who already fill that niche. The fact of the matter is, losing their habitat spells serious consequences for their future. So yeah, anytime you read this false factoid, just remember, no one even knew how many polar bears there were to begin with, hunting affected their numbers, and their habitat is being destroyed at a rapid pace. Additionally, I figured this all out by just doing a Google search. So any journalist or blogger that uses this fact is probably aware that it isn't true or just doesn't care. This myth was busted. All right, so recapping our ice cap chapter. The Arctic is warming at a higher rate than the rest of the world because it's precariously balanced ecosystem that needs everything to be just right. The uh, Goldilocks of ecosystems, if you will. Luckily, climate heroes like Charlotte Irish and David Yurkowski are figuring out ways to understand the changes using both scientific and traditional methods. So we can fix things using both scientific and traditional methods. A pair I totally ship. And next week, things are gonna get personal. We're gonna take a bite out of the problem. I hope it's not more than I can chew. All right, see you guys next week. Bye. The Big Melt Podcast is brought to you by Earth Rangers and hosted by Sarah Marks. It is written by Lee Lawson, directed by Stefan Richter, and edited by Nitai Steinberg. Production assistance by Avneet Sandhu. To learn more about today's episode or leave us a message, go to bigmeltpodcast.com. You can also take a quick survey for a chance to win a custom t-shirt. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button. 
And come on, show you care with five stars, please. Later, skaters. every day for two years. I hate climbing trees. I'm Deborah Goldstein, host of the podcast The Big Fib, and half of those statements were indeed fibs. <laughs> on every episode of The Big Fib, we bring on two grown-ups. One is an expert and the other is a liar. And it's the job of our human child contestant to help us figure out who is who, because no one can spot a liar better than a kid. We've had episodes on everything from Minecraft to mythology and from Lego to libraries. Join me and my robot co-host Lisa on The Big Fib on Apple Podcasts or on gzmshows.com.